0: Good evening and walk, welcome to Fireside Chat with Lyndon LaRouche for Thursday, January 20th. For anybody that may be on who's new, uh, we are referring to the economist, statesman, philosopher, uh, Lyndon LaRouche, uh, who passed away February 12th of 2019 and was the leading economist in the world. Now, there's something important about stating that because of the character of what has suddenly confronted many in the United States who find themselves bewildered by the circumstance of apparent uh, sclerotic incompetence of what would be called the Democratic Party, but which which, is actually the Anglo-American establishment. Uh, We are in a situation, in a circumstance, where there is a danger of nuclear war with Russia, which is uh, uh, occupying nearly zero of the headlines uh, in the United States. There has been some break in that in the appearance of uh, former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard uh, on Fox News, uh, who did call attention to that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say perhaps more about that a little later. Uh, and there's also, of course, the uh, shocking to some, uh, saddening to others, uh, way in which the coronavirus pandemic has been declared to be a lost cause, even as the hapless Joe Biden states that this is still a winnable cause. And that's important that he's stating that because that's opposed to what the policy is, that it's coming from his British counterparts and specifically those who, in the guise of the uh, Obama administration, uh, people like Ezekiel Emanuel, were forward and uh, triage policy as health care policy as early as 2008 uh, and then subsequently in the Obama administration. Uh, there are many elements to that are relevant to discuss, but the real way to discuss this is actually the way in which our own work is causing something different to occur. For example, uh, Bernie Sanders, who uh, otherwise merely plays the role of a so-called principled fighter for justice, has now uh, said – quote afghanistan is facing a humanitarian catastrophe i urge the biden administration to immediately release billions in frozen afghan government funds to help avert this crisis and prevent the death of millions of people okay and uh, he put that out and was retreated by the house progressive caucus this was on this was on tuesday uh, of course, our conference had occurred on Monday, uh, which was called, um, well, it, it was not called Stop the Murder of Afghanistan. It was called Injustice Anywhere is a Threat to Justice Everywhere Stop the Murder of Afghanistan. And it's important to say why. I've noticed and some of others may have noticed, you know, it's, it, you have to be very careful about parsing or separating off a concept to say what one might think is popular, where you're not just saying stop the murder of Afghanistan. That's impotent. We said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Why is that important? Well, because that's exactly what's happening to America right now around the coronavirus. Now, people just do not want to deal with this because they wish to deal with things that they wish to be simpler. The reason for the coronavirus policy of the United States of the past two years is the depraved indifference of the U.S. population to injustice. And I am not talking about George Floyd. What I'm speaking about is the economic injustice, which is the characteristic of the entire Uh, approach in the United States to employment, industrialization, to manufacturing, uh, and to the general welfare of its own population, as well as the population out in the world. Each of the administrations, uh, from the time of the Bush administrations of 2000 and 2004 the Obama administrations of 2008 and 2012, the Trump administration of 2016, and the Biden administration of 2020—all of those administrations have failed to correct the mistake uh, made uh, in the 1970s of deindustrializing the United States. But the reason for that failure is because is that the uh, intent the, the the decision was made to to support the debt the indebtedness of a bankrupt system uh, which is uh, 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 carrying over two quadrillion dollars of unpayable debt and which is a system controlled out of the city of London with Wall Street as the junior partner. and also it's important to note the role of the Amsterdam uh, carry trade and that element of the City of London and the Anglo-Dutch system, which is as as important as Lyndon LaRouche pointed out uh, uh, many uh, almost 20 years ago. But but that's what the issue is. We we saw this in 2008 uh, when that system was bailed out and people were kicked out of their houses, about six million people altogether. The process of what we saw around coronavirus is not merely around the issue of the virus. It's that what has been made right now, as of right now today, is a decision that if it comes to a choice between a full health care system, globally extended necessarily because you're dealing with a pandemic, or maintaining the bankrupt indebtedness system, then the, the, the debt comes first and people must die. And that is the reason for the change in policy in the United States around coronavirus. It's too expensive to keep you alive. That will not be done. And, of course, it's hoped that people will come up with their own home remedies, you know, how turpentine will cure the coronavirus or something or, or pine tar or, or, or whatever it is. Uh, you know, and these things will be insisted on, uh, and you'll get do-it-yourself do it, do it yourself home kits to test yourself. But the reason that that's happening is no different than what we see in Afghanistan, where the United States and NATO spent over $2 trillion yet lost the war, yet created the circumstance where massive drug production went on, and yet circumstances in danger of dying right now. And to do that, they spent $2 trillion. They didn't do it for a victory. They did it to maintain an indebtedness system, an indebtedness structure. It's not even about Afghanistan. Afghanistan is incidental to what was going on. No, it had to do with the great game, as described and, uh, and, and delineated by British intelligence, many for, for over a couple hundred years, But as specific, as that was expressed by British agent Bernard Lewis, uh, plagiarized by Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, and Samuel Huntington and implemented over the course of the period of 1979 to 2019, 2020, uh, as a way of bleeding the people of the United States for the greater glory of the British Empire. As the agent of this policy, Prince Andrew, stated to an American ambassador in Kyrgyzstan back in 2010 when he informed her to her shock that she had been integrated into the great game of the British. No matter what she thought, that's what her actual role is or was. And that's what the role of the United States was. So, so where we are tonight, the reason that we're about to perhaps stumble into World War III, or maybe not, uh, but but the, that but that it's that it's that uh, tenuous that we can't tell, is because Lyndon LaRouche and his economics ideas have not been uh, uh, have been rejected actually in the transatlantic section of the globe, though uh, they have been both entertained and adapted. Uh, sometimes adopted, but specifically adapted, particularly in China, and to some degree in some, in, in some other countries. Um, and and so that's what we're actually we're we're, at, we're in a sort of a very interesting time because the failure, the loss of the mantle of heaven of Biden's administration, is not his administration; it's the entire uh, Washington. Uh, quote, consensus, which is, is now about to, because of the nature of the failure, about to see another perhaps as many as 300,000 deaths in the United States, which will sweep into the Middle West of the country and other sections that have not yet, in fact, in, uh, endured the brunt of COVID, uh, uh, and the particular variant that so far has been focused on course we have no idea whether there are three four five more variants out there because we haven't bothered to build a healthcare system that would tell us that and the reason that that hasn't happened is it isn't going to happen right now according to what these people think but it can happen because in other parts of the world leaders in this case Xi Jinping of China have said no what has to happen is there has to be a global mobilization of all nations and we must defeat This problem, not merely a a pandemic, but the problem of collaboration and mutual cooperation, the human race has to grow up or the human race will die. And it's going to have to grow up or die right now. As in right now. Otherwise, what people are going to tell you and the question is whether or not this is going to be accepted is that, well, yeah, thousands more will die. But what else can we do? We told people to get vaccinated. That's one way it's expressing itself. Then other people are saying, well, thousands more will die, but what else can we can do? That that's gonna be natural immunity, which is just as bestial an idea. Hmm? Well, thousands will die in Afghanistan, but what can we do? We were there for 20 years. We don't, you know, we got out. This depraved indifference, that commitment to injustice will come back to you. And now it comes back instantaneously. So the entire mindset has to be shifted. And our conception of physical economy is a shift of that mindset. It's a rejection of that. And it states that the only form of physical wealth, uh, which, which also is allow, allows for a continued e- expansion of, of human and other population, is that based on human creativity and the idea of the benefit of the other that the principle of the general welfare is an economic principle. It is not a good idea. It is not altruism. It is an essential component of human survival, and the preamble of the Constitution of the United States uh, is the most advanced expression of that. The fact that people have abandoned it, the fact that people have rejected it, the fact that people no longer know what it says is irrelevant to what it is. And it is our duty and those that we work with to act from that standpoint, uh, that that is the way for us to to, uh, to to deal with the problems of things such as what's called the Great Reset, about which we'll hear some tonight, uh, and other problems. But I just wanted to say that, so that in introduction to what Marsh is going to lay out, we're thinking about our role, which is significantly shifted, especially with respect. Are acting as an American expression of a leading anti-Malthusian alliance and commitment, which is there in the form of some governments in the world, in the form of factions of people in other parts of the world, and in the form of the of the economics and statecraft of Lenin-Larouche. So, Marcia, please go ahead. Okay,
1: Dennis. Thanks. And what I'll do is start with, uh, uh, I'll start with this word narrative because, you know, if someone comes along and says, um, here, I'll give you the narrative you need to know. Well, you better watch out, right? It means they're going to give you a pack of lies dressed up in some way. And that doesn't have to anything to do with the neutral word narration or making up a narrative for your child about their pet or something and so wouldn't you know some a really evil network that uh, is associated with the World Economic Forum this group otherwise known as the Davos group that's been around for more than a generation uh, headed up by its founder a man named Klaus Schwab they put out a book it was released January 7th he does one every year in January pretty much And the title of it is The Great Narrative. And the secondary title is Sequel to the Great Reset. Now, many on this call or not otherwise know that the Great Reset was uh, a name very much promoted, especially in 2020 uh, and even before by Prince Charles, this man, Klaus Schwab, Many other people, they, the book, uh, that book came out in June 2020, several months into the pandemic. And it, it, there was an event, maybe partly virtual, where Prince Charles said, Great, the pandemic, it may be bad, but it's so useful. We can use it to reset the economy. And you know, if he says that, what was meant was reset it in in a way that, and this has to do with the green transition, so-called, that millions of people can die off in order that the control is maintained by the financial side of this control group, City of London, Wall Street. And um, that was the meaning of the Great Reset, and it rightly has gotten... uh, uh, A very bad name. So the great narrative, the new book by Klaus Schwab about January 7th says proudly it's a sequel to Great Reset. And now let me say more about this. Uh, I haven't read the book, but the whole idea of narratives, Dennis has raised this along with the issue of war, in terms of health care fundamentally, whether we live or die, the great narrative is part of this great reset that is deadly and i wanted to just give some short history to lead up to where we are today on the healthcare care track and the uh the deadly narratives we've had a few of them in recent decades that bring us up to the one today that Dennis just described where there is now being promoted the idea, well, the uh, the the coronavirus and its variants are the new normal. But that's for a few minutes from now. Let's go back. Um, I'd like to just start in the mid-1900s because it's good to take uh, 1900s. It's good to have a benchmark, and World War II was one of those, because if we just take our own nation um, – The fact of having the draft, of having otherwise people uh, assigned to do things like work in factories, women did that, or work on farms, a lot was found out about the demographics of our nation. We had a a big percentage in some of our 3,000 counties of young men who were malnourished. They had rickets. They had worms. We also knew they may not be draftees. uh, That we had in certain areas women who who uh, had uh, trouble with uh, they lost babies. They had a high natal uh, mortality rate. We had people with cleft palates. We had there was a whole inventory in a way after right during and after the war, and there was a good reset. The good reset after the World War II is okay we have all this, let's improve it. The war is over. And a number of things were taken um steps were taken to improve it. There was there and there were school lunches were set up. There were um there was a mobilization on tuberculosis to get rid of it. Later on came the mobilization against polio. The idea was in this reset about health is go after infectious diseases, go after chronic diseases, go after malnutrition-related diseases, go after the whole thing. That was the uh, narrative that we're going to defeat disease, not live with, not new normal, not nothing. In the middle of that, I, I want to point out that's the significance Of a very important measure in 1946, among these many new measures, um, uh, a measure called the Hospital Survey and Construction Act. And uh, it did have bipartisan support, a senator from the south, Lister, and a senator from the north, Hill, uh, Democrat and Republican. So it's often called Lister, no, I said Lister, Burton is from the north. Uh, I think Hill's first name is Lister. That's why I was confused. So anyway, this is only nine pages, this act, and the other acts on school lunches, everything. They weren't that long because the principle was clear enough. You didn't have to go into horrendous detail. This Hill-Burton or Hospital Survey and Construction Act had a couple of aspects to it. In its name, you know it's concerned with hospitals, so it looked at all three thousand counties and and this concerned itself with medical treatment, not with nutrition not but actually, if you broke your leg or something else, where could you get treated and It did a calculation at the time of if you were going to get good standard care, how many beds should be sitting in a hospital that you can reach. And it was said for every thousand people in your county there should be if you if it was a rural county, five and a half beds per thousand people because your transportation was more challenging. In a city you needed fewer, four and a half beds. And the presumption was this would change over time. As your treatment got better in the ensuing decades, you didn't have to stay in the hospital so long. I mean in the past you might have to be in just to get uh, cataract surgery. On the other hand, nobody had if you have more complicated surgery that no one ever dreamed of like getting a new ankle, you might stay in longer. So this was the principle and the other thing about this act was you should oh, they had said we have it have to do something about the um, problems with uh, women and children, so we have to specify natal units. How many natal units should be in every county for urban and city? So these are interesting numbers, and the all 3,000 counties were surveyed, and they were worked on. We'll get to that, but the principle in, involved was whether it's uh, studying whatever whatever you need, there should be a way to provide it. And this was for the United States. By implication, this should be what every nation should be supported to do. And the point about it is you'd have to look at your people. What do you need? If you're in an area like uh, Detroit, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Birmingham, Alabama, and you might have a lot of fact factory accidents burns fires you're around blast furnaces then those units should be increased if you're in rural areas i'm afraid people lose arms and legs and farm machinery you better have orthopedic surgeons this was the kind of thing that was gone into as a parallel to the veterans administration setting up hospitals for returning veterans now i'm really Um, kind of beating this point into the ground but everyone looked at which counties had a lot of young men returning marrying and you'd have a lot of children they needed children's hospitals, pediatric beds and which counties tended to have a lot of elderly uh, then you wouldn't need that kind of thing. That's the point Um, what do you need and the hospitals is the centerpiece of it all but what do you need in the way of in particular specialties and services. Okay, now how did it work at the time? Um, Some people are ancient enough to know, and other younger people may have no idea. What about um, how was all this uh, paid for? In two respects, wherever there was a need to build a hospital, there was discussion about federal credit or uh, combined Uh, Sometimes you needed to just add a wing somewhere to an existing hospital to get the bed count up. And some federal credit could be intermingled with faith hospitals like um, uh, Methodist or uh, Jewish hospitals, the big Catholic systems. They were public or private, but they weren't PPP, no public-private partnerships. They were just objectively figured out how to do it. And early on in the 50s and so forth, they were segregated, not good. This was rectified in the 60s with the acts that came later, but they were built. They were still built, the actual physical beds and the wings and everything else. And during this same period, then there were hearings in Congress to do other things. How many cancer diagnostic Clinics and pieces of machinery should you have all around the country so that if you lived in West Nebraska, you didn't have to drive 400 miles to get a mammogram. That kind of thing was the ruling principle. That is the Hill-Burton principle, not just beds per thousand or numbers or something. But what do you need? The credit should be available. And if in the United States you have a legacy, that you have hospitals. I mentioned the faith hospitals. You have civic hospitals, the Shriners Children's Hospital. It, you you have counties uh, uh, facilities from local governments. That was all the way it was. Now, otherwise, how was your own health care paid for, if, if, if you were young or old? Well, mostly you had and a non-profit insurance company at the time called Blue Cross Blue Shield, and you had a for-profit one. I think it was Hartford. I can't remember now, and other kinds of things. And you had millions of people with no insurance. So you had an inadequate but functioning system that you could improve where you would have a, a hospital for the poor, You would have some money raised by civic organizations, donations. A coal baron in Pennsylvania donated a hospital called the Geisinger Clinic. You got all that. But you still were on track to go somewhere based on the Hill-Burton principle. And by around the 1970s, 1980s, you were starting to to have – Built the wings, the beds, the hospitals to meet this. Now, I just uh, say that because we can fast forward. What happened then? The big narrative in the early 80s that came, especially under the Nixon administration, which would um, uh, was actually the uh, that uh, that this could be made much better. Uh, now watch out for the word narrative. If the so much money that was going into these different kinds of things was better uh, spent, because people it appeals to the fact everyone's worried about money, aren't they, all the time? So just appealing to that was the idea that we should manage the money better. And bang, the that's when the first law under the Nixon administration, came up of the Health Management Organization, HMOs. And since nobody would go for the fact that the financial uh, uh, gangs associated with Wall Street and the City of London wanted to come in and set up private gatekeepers to decide whether you should get treated or whether the hospital should be paid, should be allowed, they said it will just be a pilot, just be an experiment. And how do you create a narrative? You get a celebrity. And the celebrity they picked was so crass, it was the brother of Jack Kennedy, the president, and Robert Kennedy, who had both been murdered. Ted Kennedy was made the out-front celebrity of the narrative of managed care is good for you. It will save money to our nation. It will save money out of your pocket. And the other point is, it was repeated enough and bulled through, and Congress was corrupt enough that over the following years, the whole system of uh, certain kinds of hospitals was um, subverted. There was pri- there was the uh, private money was allowed to come in and start buying them up for profit. Um, certain kinds of insurance were replaced by. New private insurance, um, very profit-making, and you, and you. This went on over the years to an extreme degree, and the, uh, rather than take time, it just uh, you know you could go into examples. There was big systems of for-profit hospitals, like the famous Columbia system, or. I think it's Columbia HCA now at one point had 340 hospitals just to make money off this kind of system. So what happened is to continue to screw it even more, uh, what are you going to do? Instead, you would want to roll all this back and start to take care of everyone. And, And the other thing is doctors were not allowed to doctor. They had to be forced into... Um, bigger and bigger kind of partnerships just to exist instead of having a private local practice. So you couldn't say we want to screw you more. Instead of saying we want to uh, uh, have more care and arrange it, it was instead under uh, President Obama. As soon as he came in, within weeks, it was said we need more insurance, not not that we need more care. That was secondary. We need more insurance. We'll make sure everyone has insurance. The federal government will pay the private insurance companies, which is what we have up through today. And it it was not, it was attacked, but by frequently by people, not in a way effectively. But I just want to point out one thing. As soon as president Obama was inaugurated, one of the leaders of the pack of this kind of thing um, uh, came over from Tony Blair. Tony Blair was, Prime Minister from, what is it, 1997 to 2003 or something like that. And uh, he had a health department, and his top advisor is a man named Simon Stevens. And the England didn't have the system like the U.S. After the war, they set up a thing called the National Health System. And everyone was, they had a problem with resources, but if you lived there, you could go there. You could go to it and get treatment. And whatever its problems, that was their system. But Tony Blair and the man named Simon Stevens, Stevens said it had to change. It was overspending. It was not allocating properly. And he set up a thing called NICE, N-I-C-E, National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, saying that in the National Health Service, a panel will decide when some medicine is warranted, when it isn't, not doctors, but this panel, what what cancer drug you can get or not, what kidney drug you can get or not, whether you deserve to be in the hospital or not. So Simon Stevens came over was in all the discussions at the White House, and more than that, went to Minnesota where he became head of the uh, elderly care department of U, uh, United Healthcare the biggest uh, which was at the time or soon came to be the biggest private health insurance company in the country and was the one that specialized in how to get all the sweetheart deals out of the federal government through Medicare all the special kind of deals Medicare Direct, Medicare Advantage, Medicare this, Medicare that, all for the elderly. So each point in this kind of takedown situation of a functioning system had its own narrative. And I said takedown because after the buildup in all 3,000 counties of beds per 1,000 people and other things, it all came down from the 1980s, 1990s, it's coming it's come down over the last 2 years you know just last week i think in i was looking in eastern pennsylvania the philadelphia area, you can read all the time people on the phone can describe wherever you live there's going to be hospital closures that have taken place so the and since then the narrative when someone wants to do something even if they don't know what is well if you try and do anything from the top, that there should be sufficient hospitals, public health uh, uh, worker, a public health workforce for emergency and otherwise for pest eradication, for water, you're, you're, it's socialized medicine. There's another narrative, and so in fact we get up to the present time, and the um i just want to leave this wide open is that the um, you the the situation we have is this is an we are right now seeing the ultimate narrative is uh has been put forward by this uh man who was very active at the time in spring two thousand and nine during the Obamacare. Development period. Ezekiel Emanuel, we used to call him Ezekiel Emanuel, and he was confronted by our friends Paul Gallagher, Anton Shakin, many other people directly, because he backed this kind of rationing care. What? How you can find a way not to give not to give care? And I'll just say that um, just people may have seen. In your local paper, some of the syndicated opinion columns by Ezekiel Emanuel and others, he was one of six that formed the Health Care COVID-19 Advisory Committee for the Biden transition team a year or so ago, and one that I noticed was December 30th in uh, 2021, there was a, a an opinion column by Emanuel and Michael Osterholm from Minnesota that he's another story, he's an actual epidemiologist, and, uh, but then he was on this team of six. And what the, this particular opinion column, which is and there's other versions of it, including in the journal of American, the American Medical Association JAMA, well, let's face it. We have a situation where all we can do is crisis management. Their points include, we have a shortage of the effective monoclonal antibody particular treatment in the country. We should ration it. We have a shortage of the new Pfizer therapeutic pill, and it takes months to produce. Let's just ration it. Instead of let's mobilize, instead of human life is at stake. So this is the grisly narrative. I'm not presenting it as an academic anything. It's it's what we're seeing in action. It's the kind of thing that the Committee for the Coincidence of Opposites that was formed in 2020, right at the time of this great reset outrage book that I already referred to, the Committee for Coincidence of Opposites absolutely is four square Against not just these individual things, but the whole principle um, that's involved. Life is sacred. We fight for life. We have a situation that is in crisis, but the way to do it is to mobilize, to meet it in all respects. And that means it calls the question on hard facilities like infrastructure and everything else, on staff. I'll just say one more thing about this Easy Kill Emanuel's viewpoint. He says there's two 9.8 million staff in the United States involved in doctors, in, in uh, doctoring, nursing care, health care. And since 20% of the, these people, including public health workers, are going to be expected to be hit, which they are being hit, then... All you can do is crisis manage instead of the idea of, you know, it, 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 of, of actually recruiting a health corps, mobilizing for vaccinations all around the world and, and maximum here in the U.S. We're just up against um, a narrative that uh, I think I've said enough has to be defeated. And that's what our job is. OK, Dennis.